Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I want to start this interview off with a quick warning. There's going to be some very frank and sometimes graphic talk about death and cancer coming up in this interview. It's a conversation with Phil Elverum. He's a recording artist and songwriter. Elverum's career dates back over 20 years, first as The Microphones, later as Mount Erie. He's produced ambitious, beautiful records that mix genres like folk, noise, death metal, shoegaze, and more. Sounds a little bit like I'm listing off of the different bins in a record store, but it's really compelling stuff. His albums have gotten a lot of praise, not just because of the studio experimentation, but because of the beautiful ephemeral lyrics he uses to tackle big existential questions. When we talked in 2017, he just released a very, very different record. On A Crow Looked at Me, he abandons pretty much all of that. His first wife, Genevieve Elverum, had died of pancreatic cancer earlier that year. Along with Phil, she left behind a daughter. Phil wrote and recorded the album in the room where she died, using instruments she owned. As an album, it's raw, plain-spoken, and therapeutic. He paints a portrait of grief by framing his music around really specific moments, trips to the hospital, getting rid of old clothes, getting stuff in the mail for her long after she's passed. These days, Phil is still recording, as prolific as ever. A few months ago, Phil released another album, his first in over 15 years, recorded as The Microphones. He called it Microphones in 2020. Let's listen to a bit of it. Phil Elverum, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's nice to be here. Phil, I want to talk about a dumb thing because I think we're going to mostly talk about not dumb things. <laughs> and so... I'll, I'll see about that. See what I can do about that. <laughs> I, I just feel like we're going to have a hard time coming back around to dumb things. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask you about something that came up when you were a guest on my comedy show, Jordan Jesse Go, that maybe has been the single thing that has generated the most response from our audience in the entire history of the program. What? Yeah, I mean, we've been doing that show 10 years, and I don't, I can't think of a single thing that has generated the intensity. Oh, maybe that one time that Jordan suggested a nonsense license plate that said full chort. But, <laughs> but besides that, it's a thing called Wad Lord. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could explain to our NPR audience what Wadlord is. <laughs> Wadlord's hitting the big time right now. Uh, <laughs> Wadlord is a cash-based, very raw gambling game uh, that we invented on tour at the merch table where you just have a wad of cash and... Um, all the players have to guess how much is in the wad, and whoever gets closest gets the entire wad of cash. It's very high stakes. 
the participants each contribute to the wad, and then the wad lord is the person who's not uh, in contention for the wad, who knows the number and is um, the judge, basically. So yeah, all the players contribute some bills, but only they know what they've contributed. But here's the question, Phil. If everybody contributes to this wad of cash, why would anyone contribute more than they have to in order to get in the game? I mean, this is a gambling game where the buy-in is one bill, and mm-hmm. it could be a- any amount that's, you know, there's no reason to, to put in a 20 or a 50 or a 100, right? No, there's by putting in a higher denomination bill, you are buying yourself the advantage of knowing that the amount is at least, you know, $50 or $100. You So I have a friend I played a, a really crazy round with. He put in $100, and he's like a poor guy. And so he won. He won the wad, of course, because he knew it was like $122. And um, so that, but, you know... It's a greater risk as well. It started as a joke, this game, but then as we thought about it more like this, the subtleties of it really revealed themselves. It sounds like the kind of game that would lead to violence, honestly. Yeah, well, the game itself is kind of like economic violence. (laughs) (laughs) What's the most money that you've won playing Wadlord? I've only played a few real rounds because it's so terrifying. So few people, there's so few times where people are like, okay, let's do this for real. So it's only in really crazy moments. But I think I lost $80 once in a, you know, in one wad. I mean, $80 is enough money that you miss it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was worth it, though. (laughs) It wasn't worth it. It's so stupid. I, I actually want to talk to you about the island that you live in. You're talking to me from Anacortes, Washington. That's right. And it's where you live and I think also where you grew up, right? Yeah, I'm from here. I grew up out of town, but yeah, basically five miles out in the woods. But this this is the town. This is the island. What's it like there? It's a s- small town, small city, like fifteen or 17,000 people or something. And my family's been here for many generations. It's very beautiful here and kind of awkward, too. <laughs> it's it's a retirement town. It's a tourist town now. Some oil refineries. Why did you stay there? I didn't stay. I, I moved away. I lived in Olympia for five years, and I went on tour for 20 years. I mean, you know, I, I entered a part of my life where I just am always leaving. So I think that's a big part of why I'm able to keep living in Anacortes is because I leave all the time. I feel like a lot of people that I talk to who are artists who grow up in a small place, a sort of bounded place, all they thought about when they were a kid and a teenager was their plan to leave to a boundless place, you know, to go to yeah. some place where they could do anything they wanted because nobody cared. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I never felt that way. I, my friends and I in high school. I mean, that was definitely the consensus for everyone else. That everyone couldn't wait to move to Seattle or. New York or whatever, but um, not me. My friends and I, we just were so busy with our own weird stuff we were doing, our art projects and bands and zines, and it just never seemed uh, it never seemed true that this place is boring and nothing ever happens because we are just so occupied with our weird stuff. But, you know, I, 
I knew I wanted to leave just for the experience of living a full life. How, how did you meet your wife? She's French-Canadian. She was French-Canadian, and she was living in Victoria, British Columbia, which is pretty close to Anacortes. It's like 30 miles or something, but across an international border. But there's a ferry from here to there. Anyway, she was in the neighborhood, and she was putting on shows. This was in, like, 2003. And so she met a bunch of people, friends of mine, in, like, the music world before she met me. And I started hearing about her, this this magical French-Canadian person named Geneviève that lived in Victoria. And, oh, Phil, just wait till you meet her. And so, so there was this sort of build-up. People um, knew that we were going to, something was going to, that we were meant to meet each other, I think. And she actually wrote to me. I was living in a cabin in Norway by myself this one crazy winter. I went and tried to do that for my life. I was like, I'm moving to Norway forever. Goodbye, everybody. And I went and lived in the Arctic. And anyways, she sent me a letter there. She sent me a little package of her books that she made. She was a cartoonist. So that was how I first encountered her. And then we met in person. I went over there and she set up a bunch of shows for the two of us to play around Victoria and all those islands up, up the Canadian Gulf Island coast. Did the two of you correspond, or were you just looking for an excuse to get out of Norway? No, when when we we corresponded a little bit, and I knew that Norway it wasn't going to work out for me to live there alone forever. Like the romance bubble popped pretty quickly, and I came back the next spring and with plans to play shows, and we were corresponding the whole time and talking on the phone, and. We met in person. Yeah, it was pretty much instant as soon as we met each other. It's like, oh, okay, you're my person forever. Hello, nice to meet you. <laughs> what a surprise that you're a French-Canadian. Uh, and how, how did we happen to meet each other? Crazy. We'll finish up with Phil Alvram in just a bit. After the break, he'll tell me how after years of singing and writing about big philosophical ideas, it all seems kind of meaningless now. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the new Showtime limited series, Your Honor, an edge-of-your-seat thriller starring Brian Cranston. Your Honor is the story of a respected New Orleans judge whose teenage son is involved in a hit-and-run. What follows is a deadly game of lies, deceit, and impossible choices. Your Honor, premiering December 6th on Showtime. Try 30 days free, then just $8.99 a month for life. Go to Showtime.com. Terms apply. New customers only. Women have been written off in rap and marginalized in the prison system. Philly rapper Isis the Savior is pushing back against both. Think about the music industry. It's really like only five labels in the world. And who owns them? Old white men funding black toxicity. Listen now to Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. 
Hey, I'm Jared Hill, co-host of the brand new Maximum Fun podcast, Fan Time. And I'm Travel Anderson. I'm the other more fabulous co-host. And the reason you really should be tuning in. I feel the nausea rising. To be Fan is to be a big fan of something, but also have some challenging or anti-feelings toward it. Kind of like Kanye. We're all fans of Kanye. He's a musical genius, but like, you know. He thinks slavery is a choice. Or like the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Like, I love the drama, but do I want to see black women fighting each other on screen? Ew, to the nah, to the nah, nah, nah. We're tackling all of those complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that we love. Even though they may not love us back. Fanti, Maximum Fun, podcast. Ew. Hey all, it's Jesse again with a reminder that now the end of the year is a great time to support your local NPR member station. Do it now. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to my conversation with the singer-songwriter Phil Elverham. Phil is the founder of the bands The Microphones and Mount Erie. He just released a new record called Microphones in 2020. It's a frank and beautifully written look back on his 30-plus years in music. When we talked in 2017, he'd just released A Crow Looked at Me, which dealt with the devastating loss of his first wife, Genevieve, to cancer. When you and your wife started to plan a life together, did you feel like you could, as a cartoonist and a and an entirely independent musician, like that was ground solid enough to, you know, plant a family in? No, I mean, not in a traditional sense. We we were uh, scrappy punks touring all the time, and people raise kids like that, and they're fine, and they have fun lives, but I don't think that was our style. But at the same time, we knew we wanted to make a baby, at least a baby, all along, and so we didn't really overthink it. We were like, we're doing this thing, and let's try and have a baby, but we'll see what happens. We'll figure it out. Did you feel confident you could figure it out? Yeah. I think both of us are that way confident that we could figure it out. Like, whatever the question was, we would kind of dive into pretty stupid, ambitious things sometimes and try and figure it out. How far out did you plan with your wife? Uh, Maybe about four months. Not very far. I mean, we had vague things like, let's have a baby, but it just wasn't happening. We For like 10 years, we didn't have a baby, and we weren't. I don't know how graphic you want me to get, but we we weren't. Um, you you were allowed. You had the window open for the stork. Yeah, the stork window was open for ten years, and it just no stork came. And it was actually only when we kind of gave up on the idea, and we thought about, oh well, maybe we can't have a baby. That's fine too, I guess. We, we weren't existential about it. It because you know we had proven like we're happy together, and this is a good life also with no baby. So, and then of course, a couple weeks later, she was pregnant. That must have been astonishing. Yeah. I was so, I don't know, desensitized or skeptical, I guess. I just didn't, it took me a few months of her pregnancy to really get behind the the reality of it because I didn't want to get my hopes up again. How did you find out your wife was sick? Well, in hindsight, now looking at the last part of her pregnancy, there are some things that were like, oh, that must have been the tumor doing 
pressing up on the thing or whatever. Like, you know, she threw up a bunch of times towards the end. But yeah, it was, she had a great pregnancy and did amazing at childbirth. Like no drugs or anything, really intense, long labor, but made this great baby. And then four months after she went in for just like a postpartum checkup and had some mild uh, abdominal pain, but nothing, you know, it was just a regular checkup. And the doctor saw something a little suspicious on a x-ray or on a scan and so sent her in for or on the ultrasound and sent her in for a ct scan and we weren't engaged with any of that worry we were just like huh that's unusual wonder what that could mean and genevieve looked it up on the internet and saw it could be this could be that oh and then down at the bottom of the list like the least likely thing it could be is pancreatic cancer but you know that's less than one percent likelihood or something people her age don't get that and she was extremely healthy as a person like you know no risk factors really but yeah it was like scan led to another scan led to like the doctor having this very weird ambiguous meeting with us where she was like had to rush out of the room and said well we don't know and shinviev says well is it cancer and the doctor said, uh, uh, likely. I'm so sorry. Do you want to talk to the chaplain? Okay, well, I have to go. Somebody's giving birth. And then we were left with that. <laughs> like, what? Likely? Chaplain? Uh, and then we had to wait 10 more days to get to the next appointment in Seattle where it was officially confirmed. So, yeah, that was May, beginning of May 2015. And we were just like spiraling into this pit. What was the meeting like when you went to Seattle and the doctor confirmed the diagnosis? It was awful. I mean, it was, uh, I had to leave the baby with my sister in Edmonds, uh, which was the first time we had ever been away from our baby. We like dropped her off and we were late for the appointment. So here's this baby, got to get back in the car, everyone weeping, no kids, my sister's kids, not understanding really what was going on, and then go down to the University of Washington, and it was actually like a surgical procedure to get the biopsy. So she had to get um, anesthetized, and I I couldn't be in there anymore, I had to go out and walk around, I just went and cried in the car, Um, it was like medical realities taking the baby away taking Genevieve away and I'm like in this car in a parking garage (laughs) eating a sandwich that my mom had packed for me like ugh, it was total annihilation really of this uh, joy this like life that we had being (laughs) destroyed the quiet untreasured In between times The actual experience Of you here I can feel these memories escaping 
Colonized by photos narrowed down and told My mind erasing The echo of you in the house dies down Were you dealing with things just one at a time as they came? Or were you thinking of it as goal-oriented, as, you know, I often hear of people talking about how, you know, we're going to beat this thing or something. and uh-huh. Like there's a plan and, and uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I wasn't. Genevieve's role and my role diverged pretty early on. Um, and I, what my job became is like m- maintaining life, maintaining the household, taking care of logistics, insurance, um, baby, food, just everything. And Genevieve was wrapped up in the bigger goals and her goals sort of took a different path than what mine would have. She got really wrapped up in alternative therapies and also chemo and conventional stuff, but just like reading, researching, to the point where she was totally consumed in that world. She couldn't look away from her computer screen, and she was not available to us, even though she was still alive. That was that was really hard. Did you feel like you were looking at a horizon? Did you feel like the, there was going to be something good at the end of all of it? The truth is, no. I wasn't... The stated goal in our household and, like, the rule was positive thinking. Think positively. Stay focused on positive thoughts. But if... And I said those things, and I would never express my pessimism, but the truth is that I knew what was likely... And I couldn't turn off the part of my mind that was trying to strategize and prepare for what was likely. And so I was just kind of also quietly the whole time lining things up, making sure that I understood what happens when a person dies. What is the deal with cremation? How does that work? Reading these websites at night after she had gone to sleep, like I couldn't turn it off. Uh, even thinking about planning the, her memorial as she was alive. And uh, those were invasive and problematic thoughts, but they were real. So that's what I was doing. I wasn't, it felt a little bit like betrayal because uh, I wasn't towing the line of positive thinking, but I was also not swept away in, in that sort of new agey stuff. I, I had to be pragmatic. Did you feel guilty about that? Yeah, for sure. Well, because it is like deception in a way. Genevieve was really adamant that everyone positively think about her, even friends around the world. She was really like, we're doing a meditation at 10 o'clock. Everyone focus on me. And I probably at 10 o'clock would have been like doing something gross in the kitchen (laughs) or, you know, cleaning the garbage can or doing the necessities. Why did you start writing songs about it? Yeah, that's a good question. 
it just happened. It just happened. I wasn't planning on it. I wasn't, I didn't think I would ever come back to making music, really. I felt like, I wonder what I'll do with the rest of my life, besides be a dad. And it was about a month after Genevieve died, I went on a long trip uh, up to these islands in British Columbia with my daughter and this place called Haida Gwaii. And it was just really remote and out there. And I was alone with the kid and my thoughts and writing in my notebook. It just sort of happened. All these things needed to express themselves, I guess. And then I came home and the, those notebook things started refining themselves into songs. It came out really fast. Surrounded by growth Nerves logs with layers of moss and life Young cedars, the sound of water Thicks aloud And godlike huckleberries The ground absorbs and Whatever falls, nothing dies here. But here is where I came to grieve, to dive into it with you, with your absence. But I keep picking you berries. There was something in one of the songs that. <laughs> It frankly made me uh, start crying to an un- unsafe extent while I was driving my car today. Oops. <laughs> Which was, don't worry, there were a couple of them. Um, I, I seriously thought, should I not, should I get off a highway and finish my drive to work <laughs> on s- surface roads? <laughs> <laughs> but one of them was an offhand mention of the fact that your wife did most of the remembering for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It was something I related to, and it's such a, it's such a, it's it's such a scary thing to lose because it's, um, it's such a, it's such a part of how you understand yourself. Yeah, my grandparents were like that, and I think it might be typical of people that are in a couple for a long time. They sort of become this two-headed two-headed beast where one person is doing more of certain brain work and my grandparents were always like that it's kind of a funny cartoony way of finishing each other's sentences but that was us that was me and Genevieve she held the details when were we in New Zealand or when would we never went to New Zealand there's a good example of me not even remembering I never was in New Zealand with her (laughs) but uh anyways I I think that that the way these songs turned out, where I'm just trying to cram in the specifics, might be related to that memory thing, where I'm trying to record for posterity the events that happened, even the banal stuff that maybe doesn't belong in history. I think that I recognize that my this like hard drive of memories is now gone, and I need to make an effort to remember it and record it. There's something about fixing those things. I mean, you're, the songs that you wrote for this album are so so plain and specific. They're not about, you know, they're not about grand emotional spiritual themes. They are in that you lived a grand emotional experience, the, you know, 
one of the most powerful and intense emotional experiences that any human being could have. But they're not, um, they're not about those big capital letter wide view things. They're about, you know, getting a package that she ordered something online before she died and it came after she died. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I don't want to make big uh, capital letter existential statements anymore. I feel like that's the thing that twenty-five-year-olds should do, <laughs> and I did like a lot. I did a lot of that, and I feel kind of embarrassed about it now because I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was saying about mortality, and I feel only a little embarrassed about it because I. There are questions worth asking, even if you haven't experienced them. That's like, that's the meaning of life, I think, is to like poke around in these big ideas. But I definitely didn't know anything. And now, now that I have experienced it and I feel kind of humbled by the realities of it, I just realized that it's not for, it's not for playing around with. So if I'm going to sing about something, I'm just going to sing about what I do know, which is like taking out the garbage. And like you say, I, I do think that there's some, something gets communicated when you're singing about taking out the garbage. And it's, you don't need to talk about the grandiose stuff using the exact words of the grandiose stuff. Somehow you can point at it from the side by talking about taking out the garbage. That I think. I mean, that's my idea, at least, with this record. Phil, I know you got you got to get back to that pool and, and get your kid from your mom. So I'm not going to take any more of your time. But um, thank you so much for talking about all this stuff. I I really appreciate it, and I I really appreciated the record. It was really it's really something special. Thank you very much. I'm very glad that we got to talk. And I wish we were in the same place because I was thinking, man, I sure would like to give Phil Elverum a hug. I like that. I like that guy. Well, we'll see each other someday. Great. Maybe we can do some high stakes Wadlord. <laughs> God, <that's> scary. <laughs> I'm already nervous. <laughs> you know, I go to the flea market on Sundays. I got to stop by the ATM, get five hundred dollars in cash out before I go, because you know nobody's <laughs> going to take my card. So. I, sometimes I got some real cash on me. I'm just putting that in your head to kind of mess with you a little bit. Yikes. So it might be 500 plus in the wad? Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll find out. We'll see how gutsy <laughs> I am. You know, oh, just, you're going to have to look into my eyes and see what you're prepared to do. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, Phil. Thank you so much. Yeah. Talk to you later. Bye. We are all so close to not existing at all except in the confusion of our survived bys grasping at the echoes Phil Elverum from 2017, his new album Microphones in 2020 has a short film that accompanies it. You can watch it in its entirety on YouTube. You can buy A Crow Looked at Me on Phil's website. We'll have a link to it on ours, MaximumFun.org. We want to emphasize that Bullseye and NPR do not endorse you playing Wadlord. 
a high-stakes gambling game Phil invented. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I am working on the puzzle, what do you serve for Thanksgiving when there will be a total of five people at the dinner table and three of them are under 10 and only eat cream cheese on rice cakes? The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. If you want to hear the latest about what we're up to, you can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all of those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.